Okay, but I have to tell you guys something. I'm like the worst in the three, two, one roll. So Susan, you have to do it. Oh, good. That will make you say it, Yola, because I mess it up every time too. Which is why I think it's a bad rule. Sorry for saying sorry. Media presents the Per Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery, with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary professional healthcare team. If you are dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, the famous cat vet and author of multiple textbooks, and Dr. Yola Herpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, once again, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein and Dr. Susan Little. Hey, Susan, how are you doing? I am good, and I am so excited that we're going to continue talking about a really important feline medicine topic today. Yeah, I totally totally agree, and we had such a fantastic talk uh, with Sarah, uh, and now we'll keep on talking with her, so that's so exciting. Uh, and I think the information that we get is really, really important. So we're talking about injection sites are common in cats, which are not that common. We were talking about one to four every 10,000 cats. Uh, and we know that, uh, that vaccinations are really, really important to prevent diseases like rabies and, and leukemia. So absolutely necessary to vaccinate your cat. But we need to be aware. And I know that Sarah talked to us a little bit. Uh, in our previous podcast about the fact that you do need to talk to clients about the chance that this can happen. And we always talk about the three to one rule. I'm going to explain what this is. Um, this is about, you know, when do you do something? So cats can get reactions to the vaccinations. Any animal can. But uh, sometimes... Uh, uh, so you need to know when when you should get nervous, and this is why they um, decided to call this a three to one rule. And uh, three is for three months. So if uh, the mass is still present after three months, you should get worried. Uh, two is if the mass becomes larger than two centimeters, and and one is if it increases in size um, one month after vaccination. So so that is. But you know what? You know what, Yola? Yeah. I can never remember that. So let's ask Sarah. Sarah, can you remember what the three to one was? You know, I was in academia for a long time, and so the students would always come to me with that, and I'd always be like, yeah, what's that? Because I couldn't remember <laughs> it either. So, so I'm, no disrespect to whoever made up the three to one rule, but I actually, I don't use it because I don't, I don't remember it, and I don't, like, I remember 3, 2, 1, and then I don't remember what the things are. So, for me, mm. after a month, if there's a growing mass, that's kind of what I would say. And, you know, the the um, the reactions to the vaccines, this isn't even a good rule, but they feel different, and they will slowly decrease in size, whereas the sarcomas are more firm, and they'll slowly increase in size, or sometimes actually not that slowly. Sometimes they grow really quickly. So. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's other rules that are better. Like, you have to do an incisional biopsy. Don't remove it. There, that's my rule. That's the Boston rule. <laughs> Don't do <laughs> an incisional and, biopsy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's why we love uh, Sarah. She's, she can be very, very direct in how, how she, uh, she sees things. And I agree with you, Sarah. So, 
but still people have problems with recognizing it. So um, yeah. the three to one rule probably was this designed to help people mm. along and at least to be aware. So a lot of people just vaccinate their cats and then, you know, never look at them again. So I think right. the most important part yeah, here so is to keep an eye on it. Uh, if it grows, that's not good. Um, if it uh, is bigger than two centimeters, probably not good. And if it stays longer than three months, it's not good. So I, I can I can see it from both ways a little bit. But I agree with you that if you're a surgical oncologist and you're aware of the difference between inflammation pure sun and this fibrosarcoma, which feels different, it you know you you probably can feel the difference. I just don't think it's a well-intentioned rule. It is a well-intentioned rule. Yeah. It's just hard to remember. It's just hard to remember. And I love it when you talk both together. So, because then... I know. Okay, I think Susan first. Well, I just... So, it is a good, well-intentioned rule. But I like what Sarah said and about the way that you biopsy these. So, it bears repeating... So, so maybe Sarah, tell us again why this has to be an incisional biopsy, why we can't aspirate, and why we should not remove the lump. Because I will tell you that of those three options, my guess is the least commonly employed option is an incisional biopsy in this case, right? Yeah, I think that's the correct correct one. Well, I think it's probably potentially a lack of awareness. Um, It's always it's a great impulse to aspirate. Always, mm. except for in this case. So you just kind of have to remember this is all, this is the exception to the rule because it, it potentially will lead you astray. Um, so that's why aspirating is not always a great first step at a vaccine site um, because it's not going it's not going to necessarily give you an answer. It might actually give you a false sense of security that it's oh it's just inflammation everything's okay. Um, so that's why it, you know an aspirate is not a good plan. Um, and the reason why an excisional biopsy is not a good plan is. These tumors require a very large excision. So the current recommendation with surgery alone is five centimeter margins and two fascial planes deep. Um, if you do an excisional biopsy or remove it or take as much as you can, uh, which are, you know, all things that, that people do, and, and again, their intentions are good, um, you create a much bigger site for the definitive surgery and potentially actually allow some of those very aggressive tumor cells that are very good at invading, uh, you, you allow them to slip through fascial planes because you can kind of open things up for them. And so you can actually make things worse. Um, and again, you know, that's something else that we see because the referral to a surgeon is expensive. And so it puts pressure on the general practitioner to do the best you can or take as much as you can. And honestly, I would say don't do that. You actually could make it worse by doing that. Um, and you shouldn't feel pressured to do that because, you know, you should be doing what, what is most medically appropriate. And so the winner of those three options is to do an incisional biopsy. So just with a punch or a wedge biopsy, whatever you're more comfortable with, make sure you make a little incision in the skin and then make sure you're getting into the firm tissue that's underneath. And don't disrupt the outside. Don't go too deep and just take a piece of that tissue, get a diagnosis and find out what it is. And sometimes if you have a really nervous client, you might get back vaccine reaction. You might get back inflammatory tissue. That would tell you to watch, continue to watch it. Um, that's great. You know, I've done that actually. You know, it's usually a veterinarian who's worried. <laughs> I've mm. and just got back. You know, it's just a vaccine site. Um, so, but but a lot of times you won't get that back. But if we can diagnose these when they are 
small, you have a much better chance of treating. If you think about the two-centimeter mass, which is usually the smallest we diagnose these, and then imagine five-centimeter margins around that two-centimeter mass, that's a 12-centimeter diameter on-block excision in a cat. It's huge. I mean, it's really huge. Um, so it's, in certain locations, it's not possible. Um, and so that's why, that's again where the vaccine sites are critical, but also diagnosing it small is critical because then it's going to be a smaller excision site. Yeah, we really want to remove the tumor from the cat, right? And not the cat from the tumor, which is sometimes, I think, what you're left with. Those very dramatic cases where they look like they've got like a camel hump on their back. Um, really, there's not a lot of options for those cats. We end up doing something much more palliative for those patients. Um, and I think something else that's important to consider in all of this is the cost. Um, because if we are looking at combining, you know, if we can't get it all with surgery, um, so our, the ideal case from my perspective is the below the stifle, below the elbow, that we can do a simple amputation. We don't need advanced imaging. Um, we don't need to follow with radiation. But in the larger cases that are in more awkward places, bigger surgeries, we will talk about combining radiation and surgery and either doing radiation first, following with surgery, or vice versa. And there's there's grand debates about that, whether you should, which you should do first. Um, but either way you slice it, you are looking at tens, like $10,000 and going up from there because, you know, you need to do a CT scan. Radiation, it depends on the site, you know, where you have radiation, and I mean the center, but that's six $8,000. The surgery can be upwards of six to $7,000. It's just a lot to ask of a client. Um, and it, that's what actually breaks my heart is just, the finances also that people can't afford that. And so sometimes you'll end up with a tumor you can't treat because it's too big. Sometimes you end up with a tumor that you can't treat because financially the owners are not able to do it. Um, and I guess that's why I feel so passionate about the subject because I'm the one <laughs> I'm the one at that end of, of, of giving this information to these families. Um, it'd just be so much better to give them that information at the time of vaccine so that we can all sort of stay on top of things. Uh, it's very hard to give that news to a client. Um, either that it's no longer treatable or that just financially it's not something that they're going to be able to do. So trying to turn that around so that we get, <laughs> I had an ideal case, you know, it came in and, it, and it's, it's the only one I've seen like this, very low down on the stifle area, referring that had done an incisional biopsy, and we treated with a simple amputation. Still is a lot of money and still a lot for the cat to go through, but we essentially probably cured that cat, and it was it was a minimal expense from what I'm used to with those cases. Um, so that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that every case could be like that if we have to see these and that maybe they don't even get referred to me anymore. Yeah, those are all all really good points, I think. Uh, and, and just talking about treatment, uh, is that with the big ones, we always have to do surgery in combination with radiation. Uh, you haven't talked about chemotherapy yet. So there's a lot of discussion about if chemotherapy works for these cases. Yes. Well, the metastatic rate is about 25%. And... I'm not a medical oncologist, but in general, if we have a metastatic rate below 50%, we don't tend to recommend chemotherapy, although some, some medical oncologists will recommend it or they'll recommend it if they see evidence of metastatic disease. But it's not usually the, where we lose with this disease, usually, is, is it's locally aggressive. But it can metastasize. And there's a problem with the tumors, too, that they often have satellite lesions. Eh? So it's not only the location itself, and that's why I think it's so important to have good diagnostic imaging, um, so you can look at the CT, and often you see these satellite tumors in the periphery of of, uh, of the big tumor, 
And that's why we take five centimeters, because it used to be three centimeters and one fascia plane, like for any major tumor. But with cats, because they're so aggressive, uh, we have changed that to five centimeters and two uh, fascia planes. So, so that uh, those are really important points to, to consider. Um, I like the fact that you talk about that you really need to talk with clients about it. You shouldn't scare them away, but, you know, awareness is the first step for curing these cases. And we have all seen these tests come back with these major tumors and clients that want to do everything that you kind of know that that's, it's not going to work uh, because these tumors are so aggressive. Yeah, I actually had the experience last year. I think that's a little bit what got me onto this. It was probably just my experience with my clients and just feeling for them so much. But um, being on a panel at the ACVS, you know, with a, a radiation oncologist who I, I really love working with her and I really respect her, but we were we were having these big debates with each other about radiation first or surgery first. And I just, I, I sort of had this epiphany, like, we shouldn't be doing either. <laughs> we shouldn't be having this debate, you know, because really if we could place the injections lower, we wouldn't need to, we wouldn't need to have the debate. And um, it's just so much for these cats and these clients to go through, Um yeah, that was really a moment for me. I thought, wow, we're ha-, you know, and, and it's only specialists that we're talking to. We're not talking to general practitioners because we were at a surgery meeting, you know, talking to surgeons who do cancer surgery, talking about radiation. And I just think there really needs to be more communication between the general practitioners and the surgeons about what's happening with these cats and how we should be treating them. Because um, at the moment, I don't feel like we're all communicating with each other about it. And it is rare. So if you're in general practice, you're not going to see a lot of these. And so I think if you don't see a lot of these, it's hard to, it's hard to change what you do every single day. And I understand that. But, um, if you take it down to the individual cat, which, you know, we're not in herd medicine where we, we treat individual patients. If, if that family is experiencing that, it is, it is horrible for them. So I think that's what we have to keep in our minds, even though so many of these cats are not going to be affected. You know, I often find that if a practitioner has had um, one uh, patient developed this tumor, that that can change their outlook. That can make them um, see that it is worth making a daily change for something that might happen quite infrequently in their practice. But it helps you sleep at night. You know, as you said, oh, yeah. we can't reduce this to zero, but if we can do things that are the best we can, if we know that we're doing the best we can, um, then at least for me, it helps me be able to sleep at night so that I did the best I could for my patient. And so, so I think that's one issue. Veterinarians don't like change. And so we have touched a couple of times on communicating with cat owners. And I think it's another difficult situation because I know that many veterinarians, and I, I would include myself in this, feel that we need to be a little bit careful. So I'm, I'm mindful of those um, ads on TV. So it'll, so it'll be an ad for a drug on TV, and they're usually out of the U.S. because I think in Canada we're not allowed to do this type of advertising. But you probably all know what I mean, right? It could be any drug. And the list of potential adverse events that they are required to recite is so long that I can't be the only one who has watched those commercials and said, why would anybody take that drug? And, and so there, there has to be a, a, a balance. There's a way. There's an art, I guess, in, in the, the skill of the communication to the client that you don't overwhelm them with, with the fact because we know it's one to four 
out of every 10,000 vaccinated cats. But the client could leave your office thinking, it's going to be my cat, right? And not only would that prevent them from being vaccinated in the future, but it might prevent them from ever coming back to the veterinary clinic. You know, so there there is some skill, there is some balance there in, in, in how to handle that, I think. I like the fact that when there are these commercials that they speed up, the person's talking really, really fast. <laughs> so fit it all in <laughs> the two minutes that they have. It's just... It's great. Yeah. yeah, you're completely right yeah. there. So, so, so what would you recommend yeah. then for a cat that had one of these re- have happy reactions? Uh, uh, some people say, okay, when, when, when a cat either had a sarcoma or had one of these granulomas, we should not vaccinate these cats anymore. Maybe make it an indoor cat. Uh, although, uh, like Sarah said, if you need to vaccinate for rabies, there's you know, not a lot of choice there. So, and and I'll let Sarah answer the part about if you if you've had a cat that was unfortunate enough to get a sarcoma, but lucky enough to recover from it. But um, and and then we'll talk a little bit about what about the cat who just gets uh, uh, an inflammatory reaction but doesn't develop a tumor at that site. So I, I bet I can guess what Sarah's going to say about the sarcoma survivor. What would you say, Sarah? Yeah, I I I generally say don't vaccinate those cats anymore. Mm. Um, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think, I don't know how much weight they put into titers, but I think that's something you can do to see, just try to assess if they are still uh, protected against rabies. I mean, a lot of these cats are honestly losing a leg. So, I mean, maybe those cats can still be, be outdoor cats, but they're probably going to have a somewhat of a change in their lifestyle anyway, uh, if you think about yeah. it. Like, if they if they get through this and they are survivors, they're going to have somewhat of a change in their lifestyle. So I, I wouldn't vaccinate my own cat if, if my cat developed that and survived that. So I don't think I can recommend that to clients. We could use intranasal vaccines, you know, where they're available. So that's one option. That cat could have a, an intranasal vaccine for herpes, calice, panleukopenia, for example. Um, but it does take the question about the vaccines that are only available as injectables. And, and so, I mean, I would agree with you. That's the route that we go in our practice, that these cats don't get vaccinated again. I think the trickier ones are the cats that have just had an inflammatory reaction at the site. So that doesn't mean that, they're, that they would develop a sarcoma in the future. We actually don't know what that connection is, right? So there, there may be far more cats simply get your garden variety inflammatory reactions at an injection site and they'll never get a sarcoma. Um, but is it a warning shot for some cats? Is that is that a, no pun intended, right? But is that a warning sign? Um, I feel that it's unclear. So I'd, I'd like to, I guess for both of you, Yola and Sarah, I'd like to know what your take is on those cats. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think those are cats I would watch. I would probably yeah. maybe look at minimal vaccination but still do their necessary vaccines, but I would go really low and just watch them. Because um, I don't yeah. know that necessarily developing a granuloma means that you're going to get a sarcoma. Um, you could yeah. almost argue it the other way because <laughs> they didn't. Yeah, exactly. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I agree with you. It's not clear. I would definitely watch them. I would give as less vaccines as I can. So really look at the ones mm-hmm. that you only have to give every three years instead of every one year. Um, and, and, and maybe look at alternatives like internasal things instead of injecting them, writing down very clearly where you put the vaccines. Don't vaccinate in the same area with multiple vaccines because it has also been shown that that would create more inflammation. 
Um, and in some cases, if it's an indoor cat and you don't have to vaccinate, so you're in an area where there is no rabies, then I would not vaccinate them at all. I, I wouldn't take the risk. Mm. And we could look at changing if, you know, for example, you're, you routinely use adjuvanted vaccines in a practice that might be a patient, you could switch to a non-adjuvanted vaccine. So I think there's options, you know, in, in the absence of having evidence whether, you know, how firm a link there is between those cats that get inflammatory reactions versus the ones that get sarcomas. So we know more about that. I think there's still steps you can take. Yeah, exactly. And there's a couple of other points that uh, uh, this this group brought up, uh, the ABCD group that uh, quite a lot of experts were in, was to uh, warm the vaccines up before you inject them and to, wherever possible, inject subcutaneous instead of intramuscular. So there's quite a lot of lot of tips that they had, and and if people want more information, this article was published in the Journal of uh, Feline Medicine and Surgery, a journal that I adore. I love it. In 2015, it's a special article. Yay! Uh, so that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I knew that you would do that. And uh, <laughs> there, there's quite a lot of information about this topic too. So Sarah, one more yes. question for you: uh, cats with amputation. What do you think? I think in general they do great with an amputation. Um, they tend to do better with a hind limb versus a forelimb amputation. Um, but in general, they can do extremely well. Um, ideally, they're in good body condition, so the obese cats are going to struggle. Um, we want to keep cats in good body condition anyway. But um, in general, a cat who's in good body condition um, is going to do fine uh, with an amputation. I still think it's unfortunate if we have to amputate a patient mm. for any any reason. You know, that's a change in their lifestyle. So um, I think I've, I've toned down my rhetoric a little bit, I have to admit. Like, I guess especially with the dogs that I do, I think, oh, they're fine, they're just normal. I don't think they're – they're not exactly the way they were before they had cancer, but I still think they can have an excellent quality of life and be very functional on three legs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's some big picture things, right, to, to – that we, we can draw from our, our, our conversation today. It's really cool, Claire, that you said that because we were at, uh, at a conference last week uh, where one of the speakers, and we all know him, Nick Bacon, uh, Dr. Nick Bacon, said uh, about uh, osteosarcoma in, in, in dogs, that he was uh, veering away from amputation. So he preferred now to, to treat these animals as long as he can, could but keeping the leg on, because we all know that these dogs probably are not going to die from uh, the local tumor, but mainly from the metastasis. And I thought that was that was that, that was an interesting take on things because it's kind of a waveform that we do. We, you know, we went from you know we're amputating them all. Uh, first, we couldn't amputate them because it was an call, Then we amputated all everything. And now we're going away again and, and start talking about the ethical dilemma of amputation. I think it is it is definitely something you have to discuss with the owner and take time for to discuss. I normally think that cats do excellent. I had a cat that had two amputations, uh, two uh, one front leg and a hind leg, and it ran like crazy. Um, I had a cat with a front leg amputation that climbed in the in the curtains without any problems. So they're so versatile. As a matter of fact. I, I think cats do much better with amputation than dogs in general. So I would amputate in any case. But yeah. So is this is this a surgeon thing that if if you're a surgeon you end up with cats with amputations? I'm sensing a trend here, Yola. 
<laughs> Maybe it is. That could be possible. Yeah. <laughs> my cat, my cat has all his legs, and he gets back on his tail. So <laughs> there you go. So if he gets a, if he gets a sarcoma, he's gonna have his tail amputated. But um, <laughs> oh. well, you know, I think there's some really good, um, you know, good messages that came out of this discussion. So. I think Sarah's right. Um, this topic has kind of died away in recent years, and it shouldn't have because clearly there's a lot more work that we can do. So we do need to keep working with general practitioners to help them change their vaccine habits, you know, to change their sites um, uh, in particular. Um, and and then we also have to educate general practitioners around what to do when there is a lump at an ingestion site because, as Sarah's pointed out, you have you, you don't follow the rules that we're taught to follow whenever there whenever we find a mess. This is different, and and so I think it's so critical that general practitioners a recognize that this could be an injection site um, sarcoma, and not only recognize it but then know what to do because you know as Sarah's described, what you do next will really dictate the outcome for that cat. Right? It could it could go even worse. Than it might otherwise if the if the practitioner takes the wrong steps. And I would say adding to that, like I, I think general practitioners always feel like they have to do something, and mm. we're here to help. We're specialists. This is, mm. this is what I this is all I do, you know. And if someone says I've never seen one of these, I have no idea what to do with it. I'm going to send it to Sarah. Awesome. But you know, I think mm-hmm. there's just too much. There's so much pressure to know everything and do everything. And I was in general practice for three years, and I think it's the hardest job in veterinary medicine. So don't worry about it. Like, call your specialist or just send the case. You know, say, you know what, I think this is what this is. I, you know, I know it's tricky. I'm going to send you to a specialist. And and most owners are so happy with that, you know. And, and then once we get it figured out what it is, we work together. You know, we work together on that mm. patient. And I, I that's a whole other topic for another day, but we need to yeah. do a better job as specialists and general practitioners working together on our cases to get the best possible outcome. Absolutely. And I think uh, you already said it. We want you back uh, to talk about this because, you know, we, we could talk for hours here. This is fantastic. So if, if people want to reach you, I mean, you write an awesome blog. I, I love your blogs. Where should they go to find out a little bit more? So I am on Twitter at Dr. Sarah Boston and Instagram Dr. Sarah Boston. So that's <laughs> I'm not that's easy. <laughs> yeah. And and where do you find your blog? Um, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Boston dot com. I okay. am working on my branding, but but that it'll always stay Dr. Sarah Boston. So yeah, that's the way to that's the best way to find me. That's fantastic. So I would like to thank you for both of us. I know that uh, Susan is, will yeah. probably agree with me. This has been fantastic. You're, you're, you're such an inspiration, uh, and, and, and I so appreciate so much that you're our first victim ever in the Per Podcast. And uh, so thank you. So <laughs> thank you so much for having a great topic, Sarah, and we we clearly need to keep spreading the, the the word. We still we need to reinvigorate this conversation about injection site sarcomas and cats. Thank you so much. I, ho- I hope so. Thank you, guys. And I wish you all uh, happy travels because I know that we're all traveling tomorrow. That, that, what is the coincidence there? <laughs> that is just, just amazing. So thank you so much, everybody, and uh, and we'll. Uh, talk to our audience again in about two weeks. So thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Susan. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks, guys. 
Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat Clinical Medicine and Management and August Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. You can follow her on social media with the handle at CatVetSusan. Dr. Yola Kirpenstein is a diplomat of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently for Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX.